What's going on, everyone? It's that time again. It's time for the Down in the Valley podcast for this week. I'm Todd Golden, sports editor and Indiana State beat writer for the Terre Haute Tribune Star. We are up to episode 12. We're up to uh, um, the Denver-Dallas Super Bowl, if you want to count this in Super Bowls. I don't know why I'd want to do that, but anyway. um, I'm going to call this one You Got Me Rocking, kind of a happy theme this week, because it's kind of a happy week for the Sycamores. I'm recording this on February 7th at the Todd Golden Studios in my basement. You know the drill on that. The You Got Me Rocking theme is pretty obvious. Sycamores men's basketball is kind of rocking right now. They've won four in a row with two very impressive wins uh, over the last week. ISU went to Missouri State and defeated the Bears 78-68, to and then Loyola came into Holman Center on Wednesday, and they went back to Chicago uh, chastened, emasculated, humiliated, dump-trucked, pick-your-own-butt-kicking adjective or verb to use, um, and it was what happened to Loyola. It was a 68-39 to victory for Indiana State. ISU set a record in that game for the lowest amount of points allowed by an opponent in a Missouri Valley Conference game. So you saw history if you were at Holman Center on Wednesday. And that really surprised me because you figure, I figured anyway, you know, back in the early part of my years on the beat when basketball was at a slower pace, I would have thought somebody would have scored less than 39 in a Valley game, but apparently not. That is the all-time record. I know I saw ISU score a few less than 39 in a in a game or two over the years. I can recall one at Missouri State, I think, in my early years where they may have scored 36. Um, but anyway, it was a, uh, a bravado performance by the Sycamores. They were outstanding in every facet of the game uh, against the Ramblers, and they uh, made a Ramblers team who's really good. I, I know they're 7-4 um, they're and four right now, tied with the Sycamores in third place. Um, but I still think in many ways, they're the most impressive Valley team I've seen this year. I saw them at their best in Chicago two weeks before that. So um, impressive stuff from the Sycamores. And, um, um, you know, looking back at both of these games, let's go back to the Missouri State game. And, you know, in all my trips to Missouri over the years, and I think back even to other sports, um, Springfield, Missouri, which is a great place. Love going down to Springfield. It's a long drive, but it's a, it's a cool city. Um I've had very few times where I've driven back up I-44 with uh, with an Indiana State victory in, behind me. Um, saw women's basketball, unfortunately, lose a Valley tournament there. Uh, baseball, seemingly when I've seen them play down there, has struggled um, at Hammonds Field. Um, I remember in 09 when Lindsey Meggs, uh, his last year, um, had a really good team that was in line to win the Valley, and they got swept at Missouri State, uh, didn't win it and then uh, kind of crapped out of the Valley Tournament that year in Wichita. But, um, and basketball is kind of the uh, epitome of just the fact that Indiana State tends to struggle down in Springfield. Um, I've only seen them win twice, and that comprises um, all of their wins in the Valley era of Missouri State or Southwest Missouri State. They came into the league in 1990-91, so... That gives you a good indication of how rough it's been for the Sycamores down in the Ozarks. But um, 
So honestly, you know, when I go on this trip every year, I feel like my highlight is going to be whatever records I happen to buy in the record stores in St. Louis, which um, I just got a record player a couple months ago, so I've been kind of obsessing about that. And I did get some good records, but the big thing was uh, the Sycamores coming back home with a win, and uh, they did it with uh, by playing very well out of the gate. They uh, outplayed Missouri State um pretty dramatically in the first half. I, ISU, I believe, had a peak lead of 13, and their offense was running well, and their defense uh, just made Missouri State look really pedestrian. The Bears have been dealing with some chemistry issues. It's held them back this year. They were the preseason favorites in the Valley. I voted for them first, so but they haven't lived up to it. Sometimes when you build a team comprised of uh, JUCOs and Division I transfers, which increasingly is becoming the way to build teams uh, with the transfer rules being what they are. Um, you can have a good side of it, which Missouri State experienced last year uh, when they unexpectedly uh, contended for the league title. But you can also have a year like they're having now where you just have a trouble uh, putting all the puzzle pieces together to uh, get the team moving in the same direction. And that was really evident watching them in the first half. There was just some miscommunication, some bad shots taken, um, maybe some individual play that probably didn't please uh, Missouri State coach Dana Ford very much. Sycamores took advantage. Then the Bears, then you saw the good Bears for about five or seven minutes of the early part of the second half. They came back and actually took the lead briefly uh, from the Sycamores. So ISU, you know, you're watching this and thinking, okay, ISU hasn't been very good at protecting leads, um, so this is par for the course. Disappointing, but par for the course. And, um, you know, what are they going to be made of in the last 10 minutes to uh, pull this out of the fire? And that's when Tyreek Key got going in that game. He scored seven straight, and I thought that was huge because the Sycamores were kind of flagging a little bit. They lost a little bit of their offensive mojo. And what it did was is it gave them uh, not only the, the points to take the lead back, but they also gained... Um, some defensive bite out of that period. And uh, Missouri State really didn't do much down the stretch of that game. If memory serves, they only had four field goals. I'm probably getting the time on this right. I should have wrote this down, but maybe in the last uh, 10 or 12 minutes of the game, uh, they went to the line a decent amount, but they didn't uh, convert much from the field. So, and ISU was, it was still a one possession game going into the final minute, but ISU was able to put the game away at the line in the in the final minute and Missouri State never was able to mount a threat so um, huge win for Indiana State that at the time was their third in a row um, and as I mentioned it's their first win in, or only their third win in Springfield in the Valley era first time since 2012 when they won on Kyle Weems's senior night that was a strange game um, and the other win was in 09 which was an equally unlikely win because that team really struggled um, for the about three quarters of the season. Then the 09 team had the famous Jay Tunnel game at Illinois State where they rallied um, with a bevy of Jay Tunnel three-point shots in the last five minutes at Illinois State and won on a Harry Marshall buzzer beater in overtime. That team actually got hot and played really well at the end of that 09 season. And one of the games they played well in was that trip to uh, Springfield where they uh, one on their first visit to JQH Arena. So um, 
but apart from that, it's been it's been uh, rough sledding. Although most of the games down there have been close uh, in recent years, especially they uh, went overtime two years ago and uh, played. I think it was a six point loss last year. So uh, good for the Sycamores to get over the top. They hadn't won in the road on the road in Valley play yet. So uh, that was a, a really important step for a team to take if they expect to finish in the top half of the league. You got to get some road wins. So. Uh, and that's one they typically don't get. So that was obviously um, obviously very nice for the Sycamores. And then, you know, at that point, you're at 6-4 and four in the league. You've moved into the top half of the league. Um, so what can you do at home against a really good Loyola team who, um, when ISU had played them two weeks prior in Chicago, had moved into first place in the league? They Loyola played Northern Iowa on the road, the game after that and fell out of first place in an overtime loss up at Cedar Falls, but um, but clearly a team you have to contend with if you're going to uh, be in the mix for top half or even you know league title contention. And the fear going in, of course, was Loyola's Cameron Krautwig, who I stated after the ISU played at Loyola, and I still believe this even after Wednesday's game, that he's the best player in the Valley, uh, the most influential player in the Valley because of the, his ability to distribute out of the post as well as uh, score if you give him a chance to uh, get close to the basket. Just a dangerous player and he's the engine for the Ramblers and has been for, um, you know, even going back to their final four season. But um, And the game started out as a shootout, which I kind of expected. Um, Loyola is a tough team to stop because they do have an uncanny knack usually of creating high percentage shots for themselves. They're ever since Porter Moser's been there, uh, or when they entered the league, they've annually been near the top of the league in field goal percentage because they always have a player or two and a system that um, values uh, high percentage shots. So that's a tough thing to stop with Loyola. But ISU came out of the gate hot, and. Uh, so it was 24 to 21, a little bit after the 10-minute mark. I think it might have been seven minutes, something like that. And then ISU's defense finally kind of clamped down on the Ramblers. And I thought there was a key stretch in there that I didn't really write about much um, as ISU built their lead. And ISU, you know, you can't play Jordan Barnes and you can't play Tyreek Key 40 minutes. I mean, they're, you know, you can't play anybody 40 minutes. And... Uh, Greg Lansing took them out of the game to give them a rest, and uh, Cam Baycoat and Cooper Neese came into the game, and um, there was no defensive drop-off at that point. Loyola never was able to take advantage of what would probably be perceived as a, as a weaker defensive lineup for, for the Sycamores. It was during that, they weren't there at the start of that stretch, but they were involved in that stretch where ISU uh, finished the half with a 19-2 run, um, and the Ram, and it was really more like a 19, you know, it was closer to a 19-0 because Loyola scored right before the end of the half, and by then it was, you know, ISU was up 20. So um, it was uh, it was just an onslaught, and ISU's shot making was impressive. Uh, the Sycamores did a great, really great job, better than I've seen them do in a long time, of getting into the into the lane, drawing help from Loyola. And then dishing off to um, an open man. A lot of times it was Jake Laravia. Um, Bronson Kessinger got a bucket that way. I think Trey Williams did too. Um, but just an excellent job by the guards, primarily Jordan Barnes, but also Tyreek Key and Christian Williams too. Um, 
you know, drive and kick, which I, I beg for that all the time. You've probably seen me bitch about it on Twitter uh, that the team needs to drive, uh, you know, and, and penetrate the zone. And I mean, Loyola wasn't strictly playing a zone, but, um, you know, make things happen and um, make a team defend them instead of throwing it around on the perimeter. And ISU's distribution, both in that sense and in the sense of the ball getting out of the post back to the perimeter, which has been a strength of Trey Williams and Jake Laravia's game this year, uh, was uh, was just crisp on Wednesday. It was just it, it ran, the offense ran so well, and it didn't hurt that they hit some shots that were eh, you know low percentage kind of buzzer beating shot clock type shots that happened to fall. So it was it was ISU's night. They did a lot to make it their night, and then there was some good fortune that you know helped them along the way. There was one. Uh, I believe it was a Christian Williams buzzer beater, shot clock buzzer beater in the first half. Later on, Tyreek Key had one in the second half. Um, it was one of those days, if you're a Loyola fan or observer, where you just kind of threw your hands up and said, it's not our night. However, having said that, Loyola, what, I, what really surprised me was um, ISU figured out how to, do, at least how to keep the ball away from Krautwig. They were doing a really good job of face guarding him, um, when the ball was out on the perimeter uh, to make it difficult to even get the ball to him. When he had the ball on the floor, and what he likes to do, Jake LaRavia explained this to me, is um, his his go-to move is to dribble one direction and spin move his way to create an opening to the basket. He's a big man, but he's uh, agile enough to to pull that off without traveling, or, or and, and his handles are good enough to where he's not going to lose the ball. Um, ISU was doing a good job with its help, um, and that's help change. Sometimes it was strictly a double team. Sometimes Tyreek Key or one of the guards, Christian Williams, would come in and strafe him, you know, make him have to either pick up his dribble or, or get away from the, you know, go-to move that he, he tends to do in the paint. But ISU also did a great job of recovering off of its help. Uh, Krautwig, when they played in Chicago, Krautwig looked, looked like uh, Magic Johnson out there, or, you know, Nikola Jokic is the one I've been using as a comparison for him because of the, of the, of the center with passing ability. But, um, you know, he was just seeing the floor so well. And they made sure he didn't see the floor very well on, um, on Wednesday. And when that happened, uh, Loyola became, they, 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 they got rattled, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, and they really became over-dependent on shooting the three. And they are a good three-point shooting team. They proved that when they played the Sycamores uh, in the previous game where they were 8 of 12 from long range. Um, but after an early spurt, they just didn't have it. And that te- team, that Loyola team, just faded in the second half. They only had six field goals in the second half. I mean, everything they threw up there was just, it just wasn't happening. And, you know, the Sycamores fed off of that. The Sycamores weren't a machine in the second half, but they didn't need to be. Loyola was just so... Um, so defeated, really. I mean, it was ISU won won the second half, twenty five to sixteen. So, um, just a, a resounding victory. Um, Porter Moser gave uh, ISU credit after the game. Obviously, he was disappointed in his own team with their. Um, he said, you know, you may have read the quote, but he he said ISU beat them in all kinds of phases of the game: fifty fifty balls, effort, grit, everything, and all that. So, not much else he could say. I mean. Um, but what among the many things that impressed me about the game was um, how I and I wrote about this in, in the Down in the Valley blog, and I converted it into a column for the paper for Friday. But um, 
ISU's defense is little by little getting having longer stretches of dominance in games. Um, certainly that was true with Loyola. Um, the Ramblers were just never at the races and uh, um, you know other than the, the first 10 minutes of the game they just uh, they were a non-factor shot um, deep down into the into the 20s basically for most of the game. But ISU is playing better because they're stretching out those periods of long defense. They had it against Missouri down at Missouri State for the last 10 minutes of the game. It wasn't evident the whole game, um, and it was also good for a solid 10 minutes of the first half. You go back a little bit further to the Drake game, and ISU clamped down on Drake for the about the first first 10 minutes of the second half. Drake came back, tied the game, which allowed them, you know, created the scenario where Christian Williams. Uh, made a layup at the buzzer, but um, ISU's offense is, for the most part, good enough to where if you get a 10- or 20-minute stretch of really solid defense, um, that's probably going to carry the game against most teams. So we'll see if it continues. I like the fact that I always like it when a team commits itself to a certain goal. In this case, ISU wanted to play better defense, and they see – the benefit of it through victories. That sounds elementary, but it's not as elementary as it sounds. A lot of teams, um, and ISU has been guilty of this too, will have spurts of good defense and, and, and not necessarily recognize that that's what got them the win. They may focus on something else, like, well, we hit it, you know, we were six of 11 from three point range. Well, that's good, but um, what about the games where you're three of eleven from three point range? That's where your defense can uh, obviously carry you. So, it's good that they're that the message is being sent. I really like the chemistry on this team right now. This team does seem to be pretty unified. Um, Jordan Barnes has done a great job of leadership. So has Christian Williams, and, and both of them have done a great job in leading on the floor as well. They've both been uh, very good lately. Um, Tyree Key is doing a great job, and you're getting freshmen who are playing like upperclassmen. You know, LaRavia and Trey Williams have both been um, given ISU a, a dimension, of course, that they haven't had much over the years in terms of uh, uh, post-production. So a lot of good things happening right now, but they need to continue to happen. ISU, um, you know, we talked about this uh, two weeks ago, um, about this five-game stretch that ISU was on, and this Loyola home game concluded the five-game stretch that I created that I thought was crucial to their season. And at the time, ISU wasn't playing well, and I and I said that I thought at a minimum they had to go two and three in that stretch. Optimal would be three and two. Well, they went four and one. So uh, we said good things could happen if they came out of this stretch um, in good shape, and lo and behold, good things are happening because you look at the Valley standings right now, ISU is tied for third. They're two games behind Northern Iowa, uh, who, le- who leads the league at 9-2. Um, at, uh, and two. Southern Illinois, very much a surprise. Brian Mullins, uh, we've mentioned it before, has done an outstanding job down there in Carbondale. Uh, they're a game ahead of the Sycamores uh, at 8-3. and three. And then ISU is tied with Loyola. Um, so ensconced in the top half of the league. There's still only two games ahead of um, the teams that are vying for the play-in, but but here's the good thing if you're a Sycamore fan. Um, the way the Valley does tiebreakers, if you don't, obviously if you sweep a season series, you win the tiebreaker. But if you don't, uh, their first tiebreaker, um, well, only tiebreaker because there can't be a tie in it, um, in a split season series or a multi-team 
um, tiebreaker that doesn't involve one of the multi teams having swept one another. That's like the first thing you eliminate and then you work your way down. Um, is the NCAA's net ranking, which they introduced last year. Um, and here's the good news. ISU is in great shape in the net. They are currently second in the league with their net of, when I look today, 85, which is as high as they've been since the non-conference portion of the season. They, they had a big leap in beating Loyola. They went from, I believe it was 99 all the way up to 85. That is difficult to do during conference play. You usually don't see a double-digit leap uh, in, a, in a, any of the rankings. Um, so what that means is is that effectively if ISU splits with a team, they won the season series. So right now they won, as far as tiebreakers are concerned, they won the season series against Loyola. If, they, if the season ended today, ISU would be the three seed at Arch Madness. Um, they will win the season series with Southern Illinois because as good as the Salukis have been playing, they started themselves out in a deep net hole because they were average in non-conference play and didn't play a great schedule. So they're fighting their way uphill, um, and they're probably not going to catch the Sycamores unless, you know, something bad happens. So ISU, even uh, they still have to play them down in Carbondale, will likely win that tiebreaker if it comes to it. Um, ISU wins a tiebreaker with Drake. ISU wins a tiebreaker with... Bradley at present um, and should I mean they beat him so that Bradley is close to ISU in the net they could conceivably catch him um, if things go pear-shaped for the Sycamores but um, point being is that if you if the ISU even has a couple games that they drop and they're in a tiebreaker situation they're going to be in good shape and so that's what makes the probability of um, Thursday night, much less probable at this point. I There's a guy who does, um, his name's Matt, I, I hope I'm getting this right, Matt Hackman, I don't have it right in front of me. Um, he's been doing it for years. He's been doing these Valley Tournament seed probability projections, and they're fascinating to look at. And um, he released one today, or yesterday, and um, his most probable seed for ISU, based on, he, he basically simulates every possible scenario that could happen, um, his most likely seed is number two for the Sycamores, which would obviously mean they would get a play-in uh, team if that were to uh, happen uh, at Arch Madness in the, in the quarterfinals. So they also weren't the, the primary seed at any of the, of the possible seeds in the, in the league, which means there's going to be a lot of flux, obviously, with seven games to go. So, so But right now, ISU is in, uh, is in a really good position, and... Um, but, you know, they can't be satisfied with that. I don't, I don't get the sense that they are. Um, but there's a long ways to go, and it starts um, uh, the road to cementing their respectability begins on Saturday at, at, uh, in Normal, Illinois, as they go visit Illinois State. Redbirds are reeling. They have not played well. They're 2-9 and nine in the league. Uh, they beat Northern Iowa at the beginning of the season. They beat Evansville. Um, and that's it. They have struggled apart from that. They're coming off of a 20-point loss down at Missouri State on Wednesday night. And uh, it was one of those games where, you, you know, you feel like a team has kind of um, reached its not breaking point so much as uh, they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I know that was the case with Dan Muller. I read the, the coverage from Jim Benson in the Panagraph, uh, Illinois State's beat writer. And uh, Muller admitted after the game, you know, he, he's not, he told his team he's not going to coach effort. 
Um, he's not going to yell at him. They need to figure that out uh, themselves. He said he sat on the bench and didn't do a whole lot in the beginning of the second half against Missouri State. So some frustration there from from the Redbirds. That makes them kind of dangerous, I think, going to their place because they're going to be motivated to prove that they're better than what they've shown. Um, it's, you know, good teams. You don't talk about trap games for bad teams. Bad teams don't have trap games. They're not good enough to have them. ISU is good enough now to have some trap games. And so this is really the first, you know, trap game I think the Sycamores have had in quite a while. I mean, they're going into an enemy arena. Um, they have played well at Illinois State over the years. They've won their share of games up there. But... Um, it's still a uh, you know visiting environment, and it's still difficult to win on the road. So um, ISU has to make sure they're not too high off of that win on Wednesday, and uh, make sure that they're motivated to do more. And I love the way Greg Lansing approached the Loyola game on Wednesday, where he said, "I feel like you guys have more to give, and uh, you ought to do that for the rest of the season." I mean, you know, keep asking for more, and they'll give you more. And and uh, certainly that should probably be the approach when they go up to Illinois State on uh, Saturday. Illinois State, you know, a young team, they, they weren't expected to be a top-half team or anything like that, but I think they've, I'm sure their fans would agree, have performed even by the modest standards that were applied to them this year. They've been a little bit of a disappointment. So we'll see. Those teams can be dangerous, and uh, certainly ISU is not, you know, they've been playing very well lately, but they're certainly can't stroll into normal and think they got this you know they have to go in there and earn it so should be a good game on Saturday and then after that um, ISU goes back to Central Illinois and plays at Bradley next Wednesday and um, ISU isn't likely to get the half Bradley they got at Holman Center a couple weeks or you know almost two weeks ago um, if you recall Bradley only had seven healthy players uh, when they played at Holman Center and Daryl Brown wasn't one of them neither was Elijah Childs, neither was uh, Vale Tavanainen. Again, I'm probably saying his name wrong. If I am, I apologize. Um, I don't know that Childs will be back, but but Daryl Brown has returned uh, along with the other uh, Braves who were, or you know, the other Braves that were could have played in that game at Holman Center and didn't. So, so IC is going to get the full measure of Bradley. They're a really good team at Carver Arena. Boy, did they prove it against the Sycamores last year. They blew them out of the building. You know, ISU's playing a lot better, of course, this year. But that's going to be a challenge. They go they go up to Bradley and win, and ISU puts themselves, you know, especially assuming they had won at Illinois State. Um, if they're rolling with a six-game win streak after Bradley, then you're talking about league title contention. It's going to be take a lot, you know, in a best-case scenario to catch Northern Iowa because that is the one team ISU will not win a tiebreaker against because they're ahead of them in the net. Uh, by quite a bit, but um, it's all there in front of the Sycamores. They have, you know, um, they have the opportunity if they can take care of business on the road to uh, put themselves in a really um, massive position to 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 contend for the league title. Northern Iowa still has to come to Terre Haute, um, you know, and if ISU can. St- continue to win they can make that game very meaningful but you know I'm getting ahead of ourselves um, you know and the worst case scenario is that ISU falls kind of into the pack again if they're unable to uh, conjure up some road wins so it'll be an interesting uh, test to see if this team has the mental strength to continue to play the good defense they have and 
walk into a uh, you know a couple difficult places to play and, and win. So we'll see. That's what uh, makes this fun. So continuing on the basketball theme, I mean, I talked a little bit about ISU's defense and how good it's been. Uh, I did want to talk about Jake Laravia's offensive rebounding, and uh, I wrote about this a little bit um, after their Loyola game. You know, uh, Laravia is second in the Valley in overall rebounding. Um, he's only behind, I believe, Austin Fife at Northern Iowa. But he's first in the league in offensive rebounding. And I'm talking about league-only games, because by now that's really the only thing that matters. And his margin over the rest of the league is significant. Uh, LaRavia is averaging 4.2 offensive boards a game. Second place has 3.2 offensive boards. Um, you get a one-rebound advantage in offensive boards over the rest of the league. That's pretty unprecedented. And 4.2 offensive rebounds a game is really impressive. I was going through the Old Valley stats. I was trying to figure out the last time a an ISU player led the league in offensive rebounding. And so let's put that trivia quote. I'll let you sit there and ponder this for a second. Who do you think it was? Um, I'll give you a second to think it over before I give it away. You think you got it? I didn't have it. I thought it would have been Matt Wren, and he did lead the league in offensive rebounding, I think, in 99. Um, but it was actually Carl Richard led uh, the Valley in, in offensive rebounds in, uh, in ISU's NCAA tournament year in 2011. So kudos to Carl Richard, who's a player who um, was a tough guy and uh, an important piece of their tournament team. But, um, but apart from that, Brandon Murphy's the only player who's been in the top five in offensive rebounding since then. So um, obviously the element that LaRavia is giving the Sycamores is something that they haven't had much in the past. And we've all seen it if, if you've attended home games, uh, you know, the junkyard dog mentality that LaRavia has um, under the glass. And that's a part of it, but he's just really good at positioning himself too. Um, he's smart in terms of uh, where he anticipates the shot is going to go. Um, he's not going to be shoved around by anybody. That goes to the junkyard dog stuff. And uh, and he also does a good job, though. He, you know, he's probably good for what would officially be an offensive rebound a game or two, you know, every other game, by getting to loose balls out on the floor, too. I mean, away from the basket. He does a good job of just pursuing the ball. And um, he's kept some possessions alive for the Sycamores, and obviously that's, you know, a drain on the defense, and it's a, and it's a lift for the offense. So among the many good things that Jake Laravia has done this year, his offensive rebounding has been uh, really important to ISU's success. And this success we're talking about, hey, ISU is one game away from finally ending their um, losing season streak, which I'm sure everybody involved with the program, Greg Lansing, the assistant coaches, the players, they really, you know, and I'm being facetious, they they quote-unquote love it when that gets brought up you know it's it's a fact so you can't deny it but um they'll be happy to put that one to bed and of course ISU is two wins away from their first winning season since 2014 so um so and, and LaRavia among many other things LaRavia's offensive rebounding has been a big part of it so um so we'll see if it continues I do think you know to speak about um the enthusiasm around the team I I certainly noticed it I think the thing that fans needed, um, you know, ISU's fan base has been, sometimes sometimes they earn the right to feel this way, sometimes they haven't. But I feel like 
they wait for the other shoe to drop quite a bit. Sometimes the other shoe has dropped, so I can understand why that notion is out there. But I, you know, ISU will lose one game sometimes, and I'll start hearing from fans about, well, here comes the collapse. You know, here comes, you know, here we go again. That's kind of the vibe I get sometimes from ISU fans. And I'm not just talking about the, 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 the loons that are out there, you know, who just want to throw their opinion around um, for the sake of having an opinion. I'm talking about regular people I run into out in, out in Terre Haute and um, out in the community when I'm out and about in non-ISU-related stuff. I mean, it's become a perception that's been hard to shake off. And I think when you have something like that, in my experience, and this isn't just my experience with ISU, but just with teams in general, um, to change the dynamic of the way the fan base feels, you need a head-turning moment. Like, you need to get the fans to say, whoa, what happened here? You know, okay, maybe our perception isn't right. Maybe this team's, you know, you know, made of, of better stuff. Maybe this team's going to do some good things. I think that's a really important. You can't plan for that. You, there's no way you can go into a game and say, we're going to win by 30 unexpectedly and get everybody to notice us. It's just something that happens organically. And certainly ISU's... Um, you know, 29-point win over Loyola is one of those head-turning moments that I think, if ISU can can take advantage of it, can really get people starting to get behind this program with a little bit more enthusiasm than they have been. The crowds have been actually pretty good at Holman Center this year. I mean, I think part of it is the renovations, I've talked about this before, have moved fans into a smaller area, so you get you know, it gets louder in there than it than it has in the past where fans could fan out a little bit. Um, and ICU's crowds haven't been that bad, really, by mid-major standards. College basketball attendance is down all over the place, so you have to kind of adjust your, recalibrate your expectations. They're not going to, you know, they're not suddenly going to start drawing 10 grand a game. That's just not realistic. So, um, so they haven't been drawing bad, but I, I feel like when you get a game like the Loyola game, and I noticed it in the responses I got from fans afterwards, um, mostly on social media, but also just you know people emailing me and things like that, it was one of those things. Wow, that was great. You know, this you know is this team. You know, a lot of people are kind of jumping. You know, you can call it jumping on the bandwagon, but a lot of people asking me questions like, um, you know, man, Christian Williams, he, he's he's really good. It's like, well, yeah, he's been playing good. Um, so, you know, from a pure fan psychology standpoint and, and fan enthusiasm standpoint, we'll see if the Loyola game is really a turning point. Now, you know, it's very, head-turning moments work both ways. I remember last year, ISU came back from Hawaii um, after a pretty good tournament out there where they beat Colorado, they beat UNLV, and um, played in the championship game against TCU. They got beat, but people were pretty, you know, people were pretty pumped up after that. It was a good performance, and the head was turned the other direction that time when Loyola uh, up at Chicago just drilled the Sycamores in the Valley opener, and they never really recovered that enthusiasm again from fans. So we'll see what happens. This road stretch they're going on, ISU gets a couple wins out of that or even a win at Bradley or something like that. And um, when ISU returns home, they play, I think it's Missouri State, um, a week from this coming Sunday. Um, you know, the enthusiasm should be higher. Um, Hopefully we'll get more students out. That student section was good on, on Wednesday because um, football, most of the football team was there, our track and field team was there, which is great. You love it when the athletic programs support one another. Um, 
would like to see some more rank and file students out there because I don't know that their numbers were all that high. So hopefully it'll build that too. And, um, you know, it could be a very fun end of the season if all that does happen. Um, before I leave, I did want to uh, address um, ISU baseball. I went out to um, speak with Mitch Hannes uh, today, went over to the Annex. They were practicing inside today. And um, as you remember, ISU had a, had a landmark season last year. They, they won the Valley Tournament in very dramatic fashion, coming from behind, doing it the hard way, uh, which is uh, an amazing feat. And uh, ended up finishing, I believe it was, what, 19th in the RPI or something like that? They, they had one of their best finishes ever. They played very competitively down at the Vanderbilt Regional. Unfortunately for ISU, Vanderbilt was the best team in college baseball last year, so maybe if they're in a different regional, things go a little different. Be that as it may, it was a great year. However, if you know your ISU baseball, almost all those guys were seniors last year. So apart from catcher Max Wright, ISU had will have new starters at every position um, in their everyday lineup this year. So... Um, their pitching is more solid. I'll get into that in a moment. But I just wanted to give you some names because ISU doesn't even have a roster posted right right now. Um, so apart from the guys, the, some of the guys who did contribute a little bit last year, I was kind of at a loss myself um, in terms of who they brought in, what's, what, who's playing where, etc. And um, unfortunately, ISU has a few issues they have to contend with even beyond um, determining the everyday lineup um, because they've had some injury um, problems uh, that have surfaced here in, in the run-up to uh, the season, which begins next week down in uh, Florida. They start with uh, Pittsburgh down there. Um, Mitch told me, Mitch Hannes told me that um, their intended starting second baseman and leadoff hitter, uh, Josue Erdonada, is out for the year, unfortunately. He uh, tore a ligament in his foot um, he had surgery, and he was on a he was on a little. Um, um, you know, he has he had his um, foot up on a on a bike when I was at practice on Thursday. So, so there they have a hole at second base. Um, there's some candidates that are kind of you know slash middle infield uh, corner infield types that that will play there, but it doesn't just stop there. Um, their intended third baseman, uh, a junior college transfer by the name of uh, Diego um, Gines, uh, he was practicing, but he's got a bad hamstring. And Hannes was uh, very high on on Gines. I saw him out there running. I could see he was laboring with his hammy. Um, and obviously, that's <laughs> that's a tough injury to deal with if you're playing third base, uh, where you need to have some range. So, um, so that's another one and then unfortunately uh, the news came to me tonight from Mitch um, that Max Wright injured his injured his wrist and uh, undetermined how long he's going to be out but obviously he's the only veteran in the lineup excellent catcher um, and so ISU will go into the season without Max Wright so they will have an extremely green everyday lineup um, Here's some of the names he gave me as far as players who may play. It's going to be very much a work in progress as they go through the early part of non-conference play. Um, they're playing their first, basically their first two weeks down at the same uh, spot down in, I think it's Port Charlotte, Florida. 
And uh, in a way, Mitch told me that he thinks that's good for this baseball team because uh, they can kind of find each other, they can mix and match. It's a variety of teams they're playing. Some of them are pretty good. They'll, they'll rematch against Ohio State, who they played in the regional last year at Vanderbilt. Um, but there's a mix of mid-majors and some um, Power 5 teams and things like that. So it should be should be good for them to uh, see what they can do. But uh, Mitch told me that um, candidates to play first base are Miguel Rivera and Brian Fuentes. I believe both of them came from Wabash Valley Junior College. Um, second base is still to be determined. Jordan Schaefer, who of course uh, is, is a local local kid and did play some for the team last year in kind of a utility role, um, he'll be the starting shortstop. So. Um, ISU will continue to have, and Jordan's a, a good fielder, uh, should be a good kind of keystone for the for the infield, and uh, so he'll be back. Third base with, uh, if Gines can't go, and he can also play second base, so, you know, who knows, maybe he'll be over there. Um, Dom Cusimano, who's on the roster last year, is one candidate, and Manny Garcia is another. Um, Another guy who could see some time in the infield is a name we're familiar with, uh, Joe Keto, who played at uh, Edgewood. So, good player in uh, in a good baseball conference uh, in the WIC. So, um, but not a lot of familiar names there. So we'll see how these guys do out in the outfield. Um, there's a few more familiar names: Allison Hanna, who got some spot duty last year, mostly in kind of a DH role. Um, didn't see the field that often, but. Uh, but he's factors in the outfield, probably in left. Um, a Juco transfer, Sean Ross, uh, Mitch told me, will likely play center field. And then uh, Brant Nowoski, who was on the team last year and did play a decent amount, again, in kind of a utility role. He's slated to play in right. Nick Bennett is a candidate in left field, a uh, new player. Um, DH is big Mitch Barrow, or um, Barrow, Barrow, um, Barrow, it's Barrow. Mitch Barrow, a uh, big guy. Kind of a, if you had to picture a DH in your mind, he would look like it, just a big hulking left-hander. Um, so not a lot, whole lot of familiar names if you were if you followed the Sycamores last year, but they knew that going in. The injuries are unfortunate, um, but it's just something they're going to have to battle through. ISU was picked fourth, um, you know, but that everyday lineup and an experienced one has a lot to live up to. On the other hand, their pitching um, has some pieces that you are familiar with. Uh, the guy, the, the player is getting the most preseason recognition. Um, he's preseason All-American, All-Valley, etc. Is uh, Colin, Colin Liberator, who was their number um, two starter last year, but was very effective in that role. Um, he comes back as to anchor the staff. Another player that comes back who didn't play at all last year, who was important to the team the previous year, is Tristan Weaver. He pitched uh, for the 2018 team and was uh, pretty solid in the role he had. So he returns to the rotation after he was out with uh, with an injury last year. And Colin Klein, uh, Hannah's told me, will be uh, is intended to be the third starter at this point. So, um, so he feels pretty good about the pitching. And the bullpen, you know, there's obviously many, um, many guys in there who, who will contribute. But some familiar names, Austin Cross, um, Who's kind of been the bridge guy from um, from the starters to uh, Tyler Grower, who's also back as a closer. Um, he's still here. One guy that Mitch told me about that he's happy with is Cam Edmondson, um, who's throwing up in the 90s. He'll be in the bullpen. So Mitch feels good about the pitching. Um, 
And uh, he's hoping, you know, what he told me was, and I'll have this in a story next week when I preview the baseball team, but um, he's hoping to see what he has. Um, and by the time ISU plays their, their weekend series against Kansas, which I believe is the first weekend of March, I think it's when during Arch Madness, he's hoping to have his everyday lineup, um, you know, more or less solidified by that point. So we'll see. These injuries that they have are going to uh, obviously have a pretty significant impact and uh, makes uh, an experienced situation even more so. So um, we'll see who plays at catcher too. I, I know he mentioned uh, uh, one player he's really uh, impressed with is Grant McGill, but I don't know what his status is going to be if he's intending to redshirt him or, or play him or what. So we'll see. Um, they only got the right news tonight, so um, so that's something that's uh, very much in flux. So we'll see. ISU has been, um, you know, I tweeted it last week. They've been, um, you know, when you, when you, whenever the Valley poll comes out, um, I've always felt like the baseball poll, which the coaches the coaches do the baseball poll. The media has nothing to do with it. Um, I've always felt like that's been almost like here's the reputation of the league poll um, because a lot of times it's very difficult to ascertain pitching from one year to the next. Um, it's certainly difficult to ascertain baseball just being the nature of the way it is. Um, you know, players have down years. They might not hit as well. They might be hitting in a different part of the lineup. They may not have the protection that they had in a previous season if they're a power hitter and things like that. So it's, it's a lot more, it's a lot, lot more difficult to project. And ISU being picked fourth, despite the fact that they, you know, really don't have an everyday lineup that anybody knows about, you know, really is almost kind of a show of respect to how good the program has been over the last 10 years under three different coaches. Um, because, uh, you know, it's rare that ISU has not finished in the top half of the league in that stretch. So, you know, that's a credit to everybody who's built it. Mitch has done a great job with the program since he came and took over in 2000 for the 2014 season. So, um, you know, so you, they're a team you trust. They're kind of like in basketball with Northern Iowa or, uh, or, uh, lately Loyola, you know, you trust those programs to live up to their expectations. And certainly Indiana State, Missouri State, Dallas Baptist have all earned the right to, uh, earn a little bit of respect regardless of the makeup of their roster so that's kind of where baseball sits right now and like I said they start down in Florida next week which is hard to believe softball actually starts uh, today down in Florida they start a week earlier than baseball so um, ISU softball was picked seventh in the preseason poll so we'll uh, won't see those teams in person for quite a while I, I know baseball plays um, the first week of March those games are always touch and go whether they actually get played or not depending on the weather so um they icu opens baseball season at home with san diego the university of san diego the toreros so um, not to be confused with san diego state the aztecs both of them are good baseball programs so quality team coming here but that's about it for down in the valley this week uh we'll hopefully join you again next week we'll see what happens in these in this central illinois road swing and um Thanks for listening. Obviously, uh, hopefully you're listening to this on TribStar.com. If not, you know the drill with all the various platforms that you can listen to it on. And I thank you for listening, and we'll join you again next week. Thanks a lot.